0: Greetings, and welcome to this final satsang talk of the first season of Inflections of the Mystic Message. My hope is that the words of these great sages, and my attempts to weave a connecting thread between them, help you in your understanding about the truth of life. I believe very passionately in the transformative power of the Mystic Message and, and savor in all of its unique and poetic inflections. So it really is a delight to share this empowering wisdom with all of you. So far as I'm concerned, it holds the key to happiness, to purpose and meaning, and points the way to freedom, beauty, peace, joy, and love. The mystic messenger is an ancient phenomenon. From as far back as we have recorded history, there have been curious human beings who have inquired into the underlying reality of life and wondered, What is the truth of it all? What is ultimate reality? Is there such a thing as God? And if so, what is this divine one? Who or what am I when I strip everything away except whatever it is that is always here, always aware? And because we're looking into these oft interrogated topics common to all human beings with millennia's worth of recorded words and insights that are are sort of prodding into them, There's no shortage of wisdom to share here in any number of directions I can take any given episode or any number of shapes this first season could have taken. Which is part of the fun of it, I think. Part of the art of it. To see where the words and the truth itself takes us. To hear this mystic message in its various inflections and then listen deeper, into the silence even, into something unnameable beneath the words. So that we're penetrating past the accents and into the essence. Where it isn't a bunch of messages, it's one single, indivisible affirmation of truth, of, of this, of yes, of... And so maybe you're jumping into this podcast here for the first time, and if so, that's great. The mystic message is something we all know to be true, deep within ourselves. And so there can be an understanding and a a resonance, even if some of the words are foreign or the concepts are unfamiliar. I mean, it's really less about an intellectual understanding as it is about something else, something closer to intuitive perception. But so we're all on the same page. I want to bring you very quickly up to speed with this first season of Inflections of the Mystic Message. So first, we we took a kind of wide-angle look at the perennial philosophy, the mystic message, which says that we are a part of God to such an extent that there is no meaningful distinction. And then we spent some time coming to understand what we mean by God, or unified universal consciousness, the absolute. And finally, coming to understand mysticism, the experiential heart of religion, of life really, and, and along the way we've stopped to meditate and get our own taste of this peace and bliss and freedom that the mystical messengers are inviting us into. Hopefully in the process we've swept away some detritus. Hopefully we've dismantled some calcified concepts that have only gotten in the way of our experience of the divine. And for that, we've got meditation in particular to thank as we get out of our heads and into the heart of our experience. And so my goal here has been to build a sturdy foundation. To start from square one and taking nothing for granted, take a fresh look at these terms, these concepts and ideas that form the backbone of the perennial philosophy, the recurring mystic message. To lay it all out and start to hear the symphonic harmony of it all, as well as the, the beautiful instrumentation of these individual gurus and teachers, poets and prophets, sages and saints that we're calling the mystic messengers. And at this point, it seems to me that we have a mostly stable base, a mostly sturdy foundation that we can build upon, so that in future seasons we can springboard into more specific topics, like what the scriptures and sages have to say about nature, or about time and eternity, or passion and detachment, and and thereby explore the mystic wisdom in all of its profound depth, breadth, and nuance. This is what the future seasons of inflections of the mystic message will look like. But before we're fully ready for that, I feel there's still one corner of our foundation that's a little bit wobbly, one pillar that could use some fortification. And that is a clear understanding of what is meant exactly by the terms ego, soul, and self. These are words that come up again and again in philosophical or spiritual discourse, Concepts crucial to the timelessly recurring mystic message. So let's make sure that we understand what we're talking about here. With that understanding of what the ego is, what the soul is, and what the true self is, and whether any or all of these even exist, it'll help us immensely to understand the human experience in all of its challenges and opportunities. And so far as this podcast is concerned complete this introductory season of clarifying concepts and defining terms. So let's start with the ego, and with the great contemporary spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle, who has inspired countless human beings, including myself, with his ability to illuminate profound truths in accessible means, to boil down complicated concepts to their digestible essence. And in a 2002 interview, he does this with the ego, helping us to understand what it is by explaining, quote, It begins when your parents tell you what your name is. That's the first label you absorb. The mind says, oh, that's me, and you repeat your name. Subsequently, that name becomes like a basket in which further life experiences are collected. Things that happen to you. Things that people tell you about who you are. Some parents tell their children, you're not good enough, you're stupid, you can't do anything right. Other parents say different things, but there is always conditioning that is absorbed. These things are then collected and become the contents of your mind. As you grow up, a story grows out of them, a story consisting of judgments and concepts and belief systems. In other words, the self is a storyline that develops in the head, very much like a fictitious creation. Yet it forms the basis of most people's sense of who they are. And that sense, of course, is reinforced by the surrounding world. Unquote. So this fictitious sense of self, this storyline that we have formulated in our mind, this is the ego. It's basically what we think ourselves to be and is far more comprehensive than how ego is usually used in everyday parlance to mean arrogance or self-centeredness. I mean, it includes this, yes, but it also includes a great deal else besides this, namely the whole of our personal identity. My ego is called Brian, and he self-identifies as a male and a mystic, he likes chess, and he doesn't like being told what to do, And every time he eats an apple, it is satisfying, and yet, curiously, he never actually wants to eat an apple, and a whole host of other preferences, characteristics, qualities, and traits that distinguish this Brian, this me, from everyone and everything outside of my understanding about myself, all of which I consider to be not me. I can't find the exact quote, but I think it was the contemporary enlightened sage Adyashanti, my go-to authority on matters of meditation, and one of my favorite mystic messengers pointing directly to absolute truth. I think it was Ajashani who said that a good way to think about the ego is that it's everything that you think will die when you die. And I'll give that a moment to sink in because it's a pretty provocative statement. From the perspective of this ego identity which we all take ourselves to be, this may seem like pretty much everything. Our bodies, our whole personhood, all gone? What's left? Well, to describe that part of us that survives death, we can use the word soul, what in Sanskrit might be called the Atman. The soul is that part of us that is connected with eternal life. It is whatever it is inside of us that is not extinguished by the death act. This is made clear in Chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita A slim volume of scripture which we can shorthand as perhaps the central holy book of the Hindu faith, or at least one of them anyway. And in it we read, quote, The soul is neither born nor does it ever die, nor having once existed does it ever cease to be. The soul is without birth, eternal, immortal, and ageless. It is not destroyed when the body is destroyed. Unquote. Paramahansa Yogananda, the awakened sage who brought many of the timeless teachings of his native India to a 20th century American audience, expounded upon this passage in his exhaustive commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, elaborating that the soul is, quote, ever the same, now, past, future, as it has always been, ageless, unchanged, since its immemorial beginning. The deathless soul dwelling in the destructible body is ever constant through all cycles of bodily disintegrations. It does not taste death even when the body quaffs that fatal cup of hemlock. That ending is a typically colorful phrase from Yoganandaji. He loves poetic imagery and elaborate metaphor as much as anyone, and it's such a curious way to describe death that I felt compelled to look it up and the search results indicate that it's likely a reference to the suicide of Socrates, who was ordered by Athenian law to drink a cup of hemlock, which is poisonous to humans, after he was found guilty of corrupting the youth. But I digress. The point is that the soul is beyond death, however it comes. There is something within us, something more true than the ego's story identity, or even the physical body, which is that imperishable and immortal and eternal spark of the infinite fire burning within us. Now, maybe you've heard that word soul your whole life, and maybe this seems straightforward enough, until we really think about it. And then it's basically impossible to imagine, because what we're pointing to with the word soul, it's not physical, it's spiritual. And so we cannot confine it to any shape or fix it in any time or place. Admittedly, it's kind of a slippery thing, this soul, because it's not really a thing at all. Does it even really exist? Often it is said that Buddhist teachings deny the existence of the soul, and many a mystic messenger with a non-dualistic bent will make statements that sound as if they too are denying that the individual soul has any objective reality whatsoever. All of which I think has validity and insights that are worth pondering, and as we look into it more I hope we can appreciate that these aren't so much incompatible contradictions that we're unable to reconcile, but more that they're differing perspectives that look upon the same absolute truth from differing levels of relative viewpoints. And so perhaps there are limits to the soul that we might eventually run up against. But for now, I think Yogananda has a useful way to think about it when he describes the soul as, quote, the radiating rays of spirit, coexistent with spirit and of the same essence as the sun and its rays are one, unquote. Or if you prefer, we could take Ajishanti's sort of working definition of soul, which points us to that same mysterious place within us all in a little bit of a different inflection, when he describes the soul as, quote, the essence, presence, or beingness that you are, unquote. Staying with the Eastern philosophy of Yogananda's India, we find that the Sanskrit language, which Joseph Campbell, the great professor of the mythical, mystical, and metaphysical realms, identifies as, quote-unquote, the great spiritual language of the world. We find that the Sanskrit language nicely bridges any of the gaps we might otherwise find. We can see this, for example, when we turn to Sri Sri Anandamurti, an astonishingly awakened Indian sage of the 20th century, who, so far as I can tell, had access to entirely all of the information of the knowable universe, and who said, quote, The reflection of cosmic consciousness in the individual entity is Jivatma, the supreme consciousness. Paramatman is one, but it appears to be many because of its reflection the reflection of cosmic consciousness in the individual entity is jivatma the supreme consciousness paramatman is one but it appears to be many because of its reflection by the reflections of the moon in several buckets of water it appears that there are many moons but actually there is only one only its reflection is many unquote now, quite possibly that needs parsed out a little bit to understand what it's saying, but essentially it's exactly what Yogananda is saying. There's a single source which we can liken to... Pick your metaphor of choice. In Yogananda's telling, it's the single sun with the individual souls as sun rays coming out from this one light. Or in Ananda Anandamurti's metaphor, it's like the single moon, reflected as apparently individual moons in each bucket of water. I don't want to go too far into metaphor, nor too far into a Sanskrit lesson, because I'm, I'm much more interested in boiling everything down to its essentials, rather than building up a, a sophisticated understanding of terminologies, sort of fanning out our understanding, which might be intellectually satisfying, but it's not substantive and rooted in experience. However, in this case, I think it can help us connect to the indivisible essence by taking a moment to understand a couple of Sanskrit terms. Jiva Atman is the individual soul. Paramatman is the great single eternal one that includes all souls and is the source and light of all the Jiva Atmans. And ultimately, they are non-different. They're one. And you'll notice, in fact, that they both contain the word Atman. They both collapse upon this single root word. They both return to a single source. To quote Anandamurti again, When the mind is suspended, then there is no longer any difference between the unit soul, the Jivatman, and the cosmic soul, the Paramatman. That is to say, when the ego mind is dissolved, We realize the truth of this soul that we are, and suddenly our consciousness is understood to be not nearly so limited as we had believed, but something unimaginably vast, immeasurably intelligent, and infinitely sublime. So from this lens, let's come back to the timeless spiritual maxim, Tatsvamasi. That wonderfully succinct and perfectly complete Sanskrit aphorism which comprises essentially the totality of the mystic message. Tat Tvamasi, Thou art that. Thou is the Atman, what we have just identified as the divine and eternal soul, which is you when you have been stripped away of all of your temporal coverings when the camouflage of your ego has been removed and you are unveiled as you are in truth. And this Atman, this soul, is exactly the same as that, the divine principle, Brahman, God, the Paramatman, the absolute universal consciousness, the all. Thou art that. There is no difference. The consciousness is the same and it is singular. It is one in truth. This, again, is the mystic message, and I never tire of hearing it. I never tire of repeating it, because it contains so much promise, so much purpose, so much astonishing magnificence that in the three words of this encapsulating sentence, Thou art that, all of our troubles are transcended and our eternal joy is assured. For it means that the real you, the real I, that is ever-existing beyond the ego's ever-changing story about itself, this real I is deeply, truly, indivisibly united with the universal consciousness that we identify as sacred and holy and divine. The truth about your true being is more intimately attuned to that power, presence, and love that we call God than we can possibly imagine to connect it to the Christian faith, I think this is what it means to be quote-unquote made in the image of God. Not a physical likeness, but a spiritual sameness, a divine spark of the eternal fire. We can find this claim of being made in the image of God in the book of Genesis and throughout the New Testament, but it's said in its most potent and beautiful utterance, I think, in the Wisdom of Solomon, which is one of those books that were once a part of the Old Testament but which are no longer included as part of the Hebrew Bible, and which we now collectively refer to as the Apocrypha. Here in the Wisdom of Solomon, also known as the Book of Wisdom, it is said, quote, God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Unquote. In other words, you are divine just as God is divine. Tatvamasi, thou art that. I am is God. God am I. Same, same, same. One, one, one. Now, it is, of course, an absurd and quite possibly dangerous statement to say that I am God if it is a person who is making the claim. But hopefully by now you can see that there is a mystery to each of us that far transcends the person, or in other words, the ego. It is for this reason that Jesus the Christ can say, I and the Father are one, as he does in chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Here he's not speaking strictly as Jesus of Nazareth, as an historical man who lived and died, but rather as the Christ consciousness which transcends the bodily limitations and is truly divine, united with that cosmic awareness that is God. Admittedly, the language doesn't do us a ton of favors here because it seems to be very personal, very familial indeed. Which in my view is a bit of a shame because if this fundamental misunderstanding were to be globally understood in all of its mystical significance, the world would be a much different place. Because obviously there are a bunch of Christians out there who reserve this privilege of divinity for Jesus and Jesus alone but that strikes me as a pretty ludicrous interpretation as it goes against Christ's own teachings that the kingdom of God is within us all. And it goes against the idea of a universally loving God. And frankly, it goes against all common sense. Believe in this person or this doctrine or whatever it is and you'll be saved is only ever the recipe for a a brainwashed conformity and, and for a disempowering disaster. It's childish, magical thinking at best, and an authoritarian oppression at worst. Anytime exclusivity is claimed, I advise you to run as fast and as far as you can in the opposite direction. Jesus is not some once-in-a-universe unicorn who bestows magical wishes if you suspend all your critical thinking skills and believe in him personally and him alone. No. No. Jesus is a shining example of perfect being a hero to look up to, a teacher to guide us, a role model to be emulated. All of these awakened sages and saints are role models to be emulated because all of them have discovered the truth that is there in the place that ego cannot touch, the place where all duality is dissolved into unity, where the soul is reabsorbed into universal spirit. And so they all make essentially the same claim of divine union from essentially the same place, a place of experiential oneness with the unified consciousness that shines in all hearts as love, in all souls as the presence, and in all being as I am, as the capital S Self. And so another word for this unified consciousness is simply the self, or the I am. Or just the I. It is the soul when it has been traced back to its source, universal consciousness when it is resting in itself. Admittedly, it can get a bit confusing, a bit convoluted at times, because any time we're talking about this subject, we're parsing up something that really can't be parsed. So if we're not careful, we can be left with seemingly incompatible contradictions, or a sense that we're splitting hairs. But it's only confusing if we're in our minds about it. It's only misunderstood when we are limiting ourselves to the world of concepts and ideas, taking the living universal awareness and keeping it confined in thought and trapped in definitions, rather than more feeling into the essential life beneath the words, the life where there is unitive wisdom and universal connection and an experiential understanding that is far more subtle Mature and, yes, alive. I'm reminded here of my Catholic upbringing, where I have some distant memory of being taught the three-in-one trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Which is a pretty mind-bending concept to lay on anyone, but especially a child, that something can be three things and one thing at the same time. That God is the same as Jesus, is the same as the Holy Ghost, whatever that is, but they're all separate somehow also? And I do think that there is a profound truth in there somewhere that sounds an awful lot like Tatvamasi, But again, that truth has to be subtly interrogated, assimilated, and lived. Instead, when I was a kid, it was presented to me as simply a fact to be taken at face value never really adequately explained, but more or less forced upon me. And I hazily remember being confused by it, and in that confusion, asking through my childish understanding for some of the adults in my life to explain it to me. And instead of offering any kind of satisfactory explanation, in my memory, they simply affirmed that it was a fact and kind of put on an air of authority about it, as if they actually knew what they were talking about. When looking back on it now, I see that they really didn't know what they were talking about. It was just a concept that they parroted about without any real understanding of the, of the significance and the meaning of it. And I hope we can agree that that's not a particularly great way to go about things. What we're concerned with, what the mystics are concerned with, is simply and wholly the truth. And that truth cannot be forced upon you but rather it is awakened within you when it is discovered as a living presence. Which points to a good litmus test, I think, to help us distinguish the many false prophets we encounter from those blessed and true authentic mystics. If anyone is trying to get you to look at the light that they themselves are shining, be warned. But if they are truly inviting you to discover the light that is already shining equally within all and especially within you as your true self, then you may have encountered a true teacher pointing the way home. It has nothing whatsoever to do with popularity or power or anything other than truth. And one of the many things I love about the mystic messengers who call out to me is that none of them have a stomach for dogma or institutional rigidity. They are self-realized, and so they speak from an inner and not necessarily a sanctioned authority. Many of them are quite wild and even iconoclastic, and all of them are absolutely free. So at this point, basically, I feel content with this introductory overview of, of what these words mean. Ego, soul, and self. Hopefully it's clarifying and that you are already seeing more clearly the difference between who we take ourselves to be versus what we really are in truth. But I don't actually think we've gotten to the really interesting and juicy bits just yet, because the interesting stuff starts to take hold when we examine it more deeply by seeing how it operates in our own lives. And there are a million and one different ways we could go about doing that, but one of the better ways, I think, is to ask probing questions such as, what is it that keeps us from being free in the way the mystics are free? What is it that keeps us confined to our ego instead of living from the truth of the soul or the self? If our true nature is really at one with this universal consciousness, which is unlimited in its compassion, its love, its peace, its bliss, then why do we experience such suffering?" Why do we have such a limited understanding of what's really going on? Why, in other words, am I stuck in my miserable ego rather than living in unimaginable joy as the radiant soul or the self? So first, let's confirm or disprove whether this is your actual experience or not. Does your experience, in fact, involve tremendous suffering? Any honest inventory will reveal that it does, does it not? Some joy and pleasure here and there, but a struggle for every triumph, and a sense that there's at least as much pain and difficulty in the world as there is happiness and beauty. Even the best lives are beset with tragedy and challenges of all sorts, and though some people might struggle more than others, some might benefit from a relative privilege, Some might experience more relative happiness and ease. Some might be better at concealing their struggles or suppressing their feelings. But still, I think we can say that, really with the exception of only the awakened sage, all human beings are tossed between the shores of pleasure and pain, doing the best they can not to drown in the ocean of life. The Buddha said this very emphatically, in fact, when proclaiming that the first of his Four Noble Truths, those core statements which in many ways form the basis of Buddhism. The first noble truth is a recognition that with life comes great suffering. The 20th century sage Robert Adams says similarly that until we awaken, we are like yo-yos just going up and down, up and down, based on the whims of circumstance. His fellow awakened sage, Dr. David Hawkins, calls us, quote, karmic wind-up toys, unquote and the topic of karma is a rich one to explore in greater depth in future episodes. But in the broadest strokes, it means, I think, that what happens to you now is a result of things that happened in the past. And so to be a karmic wind-up toy means that we are again at the mercy of circumstances and fate. To live from our own limited personal vantage point, to live as the ego— We find little free will and little freedom, and only a small and fleeting pleasure which can never satisfy the longing in our soul for pure love, for unfettered freedom. Do not be satisfied with fragmentary happiness, says Ananda Maima, that great saint of perfect love and wisdom whose name literally means bliss-permeated mother. Do not be satisfied with fragmentary happiness, Which is invariably interrupted by shocks and blows of fate. But become complete, and having attained to perfection, be yourself. When one attains to this perfection, or we could also say becomes liberated, or awakens, or attains enlightenment, there is an entirely different experience of life. Shanti describes this very nicely, I think, out of his own first-hand knowledge, when he writes, quote, This discovery I'm talking about is traditionally referred to as spiritual awakening, because one awakens from the dream of separation created by the egoic mind. We realize, often quite suddenly, that our sense of self, which has been formed and constructed out of our ideas, beliefs, and images, is not really who we are. It doesn't define us. It has no center. The ego may exist as a series of passing thoughts, beliefs, actions, and reactions, but in and of itself, it has no identity. Ultimately, all of the images we have about ourselves and the world turn out to be nothing but a resistance to things as they are. What we call ego is simply the mechanism our mind uses to resist life as it is. In that way, ego isn't a thing as much as it is a verb. It is a resistance to what is. It is the pushing away or pulling towards. This momentum, this grasping and rejecting, is what forms a sense of a self that is distinct or separate from the world around us. But with the dawn of awakening, this outside world begins to collapse. Once we lose our sense of self, it's as if we have lost the whole world as we knew it. At that moment whether that moment is just a glimpse or something more sustained, we suddenly realize with incredible clarity that what we truly are is in no way limited to the small sense of self that we thought we were. Now this resonates with me as a very powerful statement that we could spend a long, long time marinating in. It contains profound truths about the nature of being and points the way forward, or or inward perhaps, from ego to soul to self. The prescription here, the prescription from all of these mystic messengers, is to give up this ultimately false notion that you are an ego, that you are this small thing that is extremely limited. This person, this overwhelmed entity which experiences the vicissitudes of life, including all of its suffering and strife, and instead realize that your true nature is in actual fact a limitless spirit that knows only infinite bliss. Wake up, wake up, says the 20th century Indian sage Sri Punja, better known as Papaji. Your house is on fire from all directions. Don't sleep, wake up. What is waking up? Establishment firmly into the self, by the self, with the self, for the self, unquote. Of course, that's the true self, the one self, capital S, cosmic, absolute self, not the the small you that's confined to your body-mind. The words sometimes make it tricky because often we use the same words to talk about the personal and the impersonal alike. The microcosm as well as the macrocosm share the same word. But when we trace the words back far enough, they all collapse into a single essence, an infinite, pointless point, an ineffable, all-encompassing truth. So the million-dollar question then is, how, how do I do this? How do I liberate from the confines of the ego And awaken to the reality of my true self. And here, there's not one set path, not one single method that is the one and only way to bring you to the full flowering of the enlightened state. Rather, each mystic message says it a little bit differently, offers a a slightly different option. And the spiritual path, as I understand it, is kind of like a tuning fork where you find resonance in whatever way you can through this or that practice or contemplation or teacher or teaching, or perhaps through silence itself. And by some combination of understanding and grace, you begin to awaken from the dream state of separation into something more satisfyingly whole, more satisfyingly real. I would suggest that anytime we meditate and take a moment to tune into our own being, we move towards that unity. And anytime we find compassion and love and operate from that place of love and compassion, which recognizes our essential connection, we move towards that unity. And anytime we assimilate the wisdom of those who have awakened themselves, we move towards that unity. It is the reason I started this podcast, in fact, and structured it the way I did to help us tune in to the awakened essence of being, both through the wisdom teachings of the illuminated teachers, as well as through the silent contemplation of the truth. And I think by listening to this podcast more with your soul than with your ego, or we could say more with your heart than your mind, by turning towards the wisdom of the sages and your own inner wisdom, it opens up an avenue for awakening. Follow your bliss was Joseph Campbell's steadfast instruction to all seekers who wish to know the way. And that always made sense as a sound prescription to me. Just find what resonates, what brings joy and life to you, and lean into it. In a lot of ways, I feel like it's, it's as simple as that. And there are no shortage of spiritual options that can help you connect with love, with joy and truth. There are paths of devotion that open up the heart and attune you to the pure love of the soul, where the self-centered ego cannot abide. It is called bhakti yoga in India and has other names elsewhere in the world. Much of the mysticism of Christianity or the poetry of the Sufi ecstatics has this character. There are also paths of contemplation that are more about opening your mind so that the individual consciousness is absorbed into its source, the universal consciousness of the divine. This is given the name Jnana Yoga in India, and is prominent in the Zen tradition for sure, and and certainly elsewhere. There's also Karma Yoga, which is the path of action, sometimes stated as the yoga of work, but I prefer the term selfless service, as the the spiritual teaching here is that everything one does in karma yoga is an act of surrendering the ego to the divine whole, which is something we'll explore more in a moment, what it means to surrender. And there are an infinite variety of other teachings, other techniques, other paths, including the pathless option, whereby one rests squarely on the inner authority of his or her own intrinsic truth and wisdom without looking to any other teacher, teaching, or path. And if this is something that appeals to you, I would recommend reading the dialogues of Jiddu Krishnamurti, a strong advocate of this fiercely individualistic approach who said at least once that he quote-unquote abhors all gurus and often repeated the assertion that quote, truth is a pathless land, unquote. So in a sense, it is very individual indeed. The great Mohandas Gandhi, who was a mystic first and foremost and a political reformer only thereafter, in other words, everything he lived and everything he did for the world came out of his spiritual commitment and spiritual understanding, Gandhi summarized with his customary acumen that, quote, religions are different roads converging on the same point. What does it matter that we take different roads as long as we reach the same goal? In reality, there are as many religions as there are individuals. But while it is, in this sense, as individual as it gets, it's also at the same time radically universal an infinite stream of sun rays returning to the star from which they shine. And so there are certainly universal themes that emerge, effective strategies that can be employed, and truth that stand the test of time. Or perhaps we should say stand the test of eternity, because these truths emerge and re emerge, are discovered and rediscovered. Truth is the only authority, says Guru Jagadish Vasudev, a contemporary global teacher and enlightened being commonly known as Sadhguru. Truth is the only authority. What works lives, what doesn't work dies. Unquote. One method that is proven to work and is advocated by many of the mystic messengers who we have been hearing from throughout the first season of inflections of the mystic message is to inquire into the nature of the self, to shine the light of your own awareness at the source and center of the being that arises within you in order to find the truth about the consciousness which reveals itself as I am, as the subjective experience of yourself. Ramana Maharshi is perhaps the best-known and most loyal, steadfast proponent of this approach, and gave a great many instructions similar to the following example, which is taken from Paul Brunton's spiritual autobiography, A Search in Secret India, published in 1934. In it, Ramana Maharshi instructed Brunton, quote, you have to ask yourself the question, who am I? This investigation will lead in the end to the discovery of something within you which is behind the mind. Solve that great problem and you will solve all other problems. Unquote. And Ramana Maharshi essentially spent his entire life dispensing this advice and thereby pointing all who came to him back to the self that is there behind the ego before any thought arises, beyond any person that we think is there. And in fact, we ourselves will take up his advice and ask ourselves this profound question, who am I, in our final meditation of the first season, which will be the next episode in this feed and the last episode of season one. Another strategy that has proven itself effective comes from David R. Hawkins, who says to, quote, Adopt the ego as a pet. And melt it with compassion. Unquote. He elaborates upon this idea in his book, I Reality and Subjectivity, writing quote, Trying to overcome the ego without really understanding it brings up guilt, self condemnation, and other negative feelings, which is one of the main reasons why many people are reluctant to get involved in spiritual work. Because of this, people are afraid to be honest with themselves and tend to project the downside of the ego onto others, or even onto God. Jealousy, retaliation, vengeance, partiality, etc. are all attributes of the ego and not of God. The ego is not evil, but it is primarily a self-interested animal. Unless the animal self is understood and accepted, its influence cannot be diminished. Like a pet, the inner animal can be comical and entertaining, and we can enjoy it without guilt and look forward to getting it trained and properly housebroken. Unquote. Adyashanti advocates quite beautifully and logically for adopting this compassionate approach, saying, quote, Ego is neither positive nor negative. Those are simply concepts that create more boundaries. Ego is just ego, and the disaster of it all is that you, as a spiritual seeker, have been conditioned to think of the ego as bad, as an enemy, as something to be destroyed. This simply strengthens the ego. In fact, such conclusions arise from the ego itself. Pay no attention to them. Don't go to war with yourself. Simply inquire into who you are. Unquote. Alongside this sort of compassionate inquiry is the strategy of surrender, which is an extremely powerful and profound value to live by, and and we'll certainly devote more time in, in coming episodes to exploring it in greater depth. But to begin to understand it, let's turn to Michael Singer, who is the mystic messenger I know of who's most insightful on this point. He's a contemporary teacher at the head of a small spiritual community in Florida who has lived the practice of surrender to a very radical degree, embodying it as a core value and essentially turning it into a lifestyle and an art form, taking surrender about as far as it can be taken and with absolutely incredible and inspiring results. He chronicles this journey of surrender and the astonishing insights that come out of it in his best-selling books. The Untethered Soul, which is focused mostly on the teachings and sort of philosophical underpinnings of it all, and the surrender experiment, which is focused more on his experiences and how surrender has played itself out in his life. And here is how Mickey Singer, as he sometimes refers to himself or what his friends might call him, here's how he describes what the surrender experiment means to him in a 2015 interview with Yoga Journal. Quote, The surrender experiment is a challenge I gave to myself to try to allow life to unfold around me without struggling with it. We are all intelligent enough to realize that we are not in control of 99.9% of what goes on around us. Our hearts beat, our food digests, and our cells divide, all without any intervention of our own. Likewise, the planets stay in orbit and the entire rest of the universe unfolds on its own. We are not controlling any of this, yet it has been unfolding in perfect harmony for billions of years. If the forces of creation can create and maintain the entire universe every moment, are not the moments unfolding in front of me part of this same universal perfection? When I was in my early twenties, I took one look at this and realized that all the moments of creation are part of the same interrelated perfection. They have nothing to do with me. They belong to the forces that created them. All that is happening each moment is that I'm seeing the result of 13.8 billion years of forces that interacted together to create exactly what is in front of me. That being the case, I decided to experiment with surrendering to that perfection instead of listening to what my preference-driven mind had to say about it. Specifically, when something appears in front of me, I try to honor and respect the enormity of its origins rather than immediately judging whether I like it or not. That is the surrender experiment, and my new book is about what ended up happening as I aligned myself with life instead of struggling to align life to me. Unquote. The results, like I said, are incredible, and as I put this into practice in my own life, I can attest to how powerfully transformative it is. Actually, to be perfectly honest, at first I resisted surrender. I found it anathema to my sense of rugged Western individualism. But after I got over at least a little bit of my inflated sense of self-importance, I've come to appreciate this life orientation very deeply and can confirm from my own experience that there is profound wisdom and a profound freedom in giving up one's illusion of control and basically letting life call the shots. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, says the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I live, yet not I, but it is Christ that lives in me. This, I think, is a statement of high surrender, of willfully relinquishing the ego so that the perfect Christ or cosmic consciousness can live through this being without any interference from a personal me from an ego that only ever limits this expression of pure being and never enhances it. The best book that I know of on the subject of surrender, and really one of the best books I know of, period, is the last book that Doc Hawkins published before his death called Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender. In it, this wise and illuminating soul spends a a few paragraphs describing the state of inner freedom that is experienced by someone like St. Paul or Mickey Singer someone who's surrendered fully to almighty life. Quote, In the surrendered state, we are independent of the outer world as a source of satisfaction because the source of happiness has been found within us. Happiness is shared with others so that in relationships, the surrendered person is supportive, sympathetic, encouraging, patient, and tolerant. There is an effortless appreciation of the worth and values of others and a consideration for their feelings. Power struggles, being right, and proving our point have been relinquished. There is an automatic, non-judgmental attitude and the supporting of others to grow, learn, experience, and fulfill their own potentialities. There is an easygoing, nurturing acceptance of others. We feel relaxed, vibrant, and full of energy. Life events flow automatically and effortlessly. We no longer respond from a motive of sacrifice or giving up something for others. Instead, we see ourselves as being of loving service to others and to the world. Life events are seen as opportunities rather than challenges. The personality is gentle and open with the willingness to let go and surrender nonstop because of the unfolding and ongoing inner process of continuous revelation. As the process unfolds, we feel an inner transformation. This leads to a consistent feeling of gratitude, pleasure, and certainty about our goals. There is a living in the present rather than a preoccupation with the past or the future. There is a trusting defenselessness because the power that was projected onto the world has been re-owned. There is an inner feeling of strength and invulnerability leading to an inner serenity. Unquote. Now, perhaps this sounds too good to be true. Or maybe it sounds like exactly how you think life should be and and how you want it to be, and you hope someday it'll happen to you by some mysterious twist of fate. And good news, in fact, it will happen, says the mystic messenger, for sooner or later we'll all understand the truth of our true being and, and put down our resistances that prevent us from living fully and effortlessly free, just like Doc Hawkins is describing. But it won't just happen by itself. Or actually, check that. It will happen precisely by itself. Life will live itself effortlessly through you. But first, it seems that you have to use your free will to choose to get out of the way. So far as I understand surrender, so, so far as I hear the mystic message, that seems to be basically how it works. And the fact is, most people aren't willing to do that. Most people aren't willing to surrender the ego to the immensity of life, because we think that the ego is all we have. We think that we need it to earn respect and get what we want out of life and find happiness and do all of the other things we think we need to do in this world. But luckily, the ego is not all we have, not by a long shot, which the mystic sages we're hearing from demonstrate both by their words and, more importantly, by their lives. These great souls instruct us that by voluntarily giving up our ego through the letting go of desires, or inquiring into the truth and seeing the real I behind the incessant thoughts of the restless mind, we find immense expansion that culminates with an obliteration of the limited into an experience of the unlimited all. One way or another, We break through from the false to the real, from darkness to the light, and it happens, we are told, when we get behind the noisy mind, into the silence that is always there, always watching, always aware, peaceful, serene. There is nothing more important to true growth, says Michael Singer, than realizing that you are not the voice of the mind, you are the one who hears it. Unquote. So I think this gives us a hint of what we're giving up and and what we're surrendering to, of what we're awakening from, and what it is that awakens. Because if you look within yourself, you will find that there is this voice in the mind that is always talking. Thoughts are moving through the brain, and we assume that they amount to a substantive person, to a me, to an individual that is separate and distinct from the rest of the world. It seems obvious, in fact. It seems undeniable that this is the case, and and all but impossible to imagine that it could be otherwise. Of course I am me, and I exist separate from you. What a silly and self-evident statement to make. But the mystic messengers tell us to take a closer look. That in fact, this is part of the fundamental illusion. The mystic messengers tell us that this personal identity doesn't really actually exist. And if we follow their teachings and inquire into the awareness of the true I, or surrender to it, we can find out the same truth for ourselves. The personal identity is just a jumble of a narrative based solely on thoughts in the mind. In a sense, that's all the ego is—a bundle of thoughts, a, a collection of preferences. A constant movement of memories, plans, fantasies, schemes, ideas, striving to get something or moving away from something and talking to oneself. A constant, restless movement of the mind that is mercurial at best, because it's always moving, it's never still. And in fact, it isn't even that. In fact, it doesn't really exist, but it's a a straw man that we've set up. A fall guy, as Ajishanti puts it. Someone we can pin everything on. Here is how Adyashanti explains it. Quote, The fall guy of spirituality is the ego. Since there is really no one to blame for everything that happens in our lives, we manufacture this idea called the ego to take the blame. This causes a great deal of confusion because the ego doesn't really exist. It is simply an idea, a label for a movement to which we have attached our sense of self. The ego that exists, if there is any ego at all, is the thought that the ego is there, but there is no evidence whatsoever for this ego's existence. Everything is just arriving spontaneously, and if there is any ego at all, it is just this particular movement of mind that says it's mine. Elsewhere, he elaborates a little bit and points us the way out of our predicament in a passage that I find especially illuminating. He says, Ego is the movement of the mind toward objects of perception in the form of grasping and away from objects in the form of aversion. This fundamentally is all the ego is. This movement of grasping and aversion gives rise to a sense of a separate me, and in turn the sense of me strengthens itself this way. It is this continuous loop of causation that tricks consciousness into a trance of identification. Identification with what? Identification with the continuous loop of suffering. After all, who is suffering? The me is suffering. And who is this me? It is nothing more than a sense of self caused by identification with grasping and aversion. You see, it's all a creation of the mind, an endless movie, a terrible dream. Don't try to change the dream because trying to change is just another movement in the dream. Look at the dream. Be aware of the dream. That awareness is it. Become more interested in the awareness of the dream than in the dream itself. What is that awareness? Who is that awareness? Don't go spouting out an answer. Just be the awareness. Be it. Unquote. I really love that phrase. Become more interested in the awareness of the dream than in the dream itself. If you really want to know the secret to happiness, if you want to know how to be free of the hysterical fears and tyrannical demands that the unrelenting mind places upon you, if you want to abide in the liberated bliss of mystic union, this is your ticket. Become more interested in the dreamer than in the dream. Find space from the content of your life and the contents of your mind and instead choose to rest as your true self. See how not only are the thoughts you think not who you are, they're not even true, and they only ever get in the way of experiencing peace, of of experiencing freedom and truth and beauty and love. Thoughts are not your friends. Robert Adams, the sage who guided us in last episode's I Am Meditation, cuts to the heart of it when he writes, When you were without thought, When you are without needs, without wants, without desires, then you are God. You are the universe. You are divine love. You are beautiful. God is always exactly one thought away, says the wonderfully charismatic Ram Dass, that wise and one-of-a-kind holy man who came out of the counterculture of the 60s to teach the Dharma or the truth, or the divine way, up until his death in 2019. God is always exactly one thought away. And the minute we quiet that thought, here we go again. So this brings us to a, a kind of a culmination of this investigation, as we take these last precious moments together to see as clearly as we can what a thought is and what it isn't with two mystics who jump out to me as the most illuminating sages to consult here, in order to understand what thoughts truly are, and how we anchor in the reality that is independent of any movement of the mind. The first is Eckhart Tolle, whom we heard from at the top of the episode. His particular inflection of the mystic message is to time and again root us in the here and now and show that it is our thoughts which take us away from a joyful abidance in the peaceful presence of the timeless state. In his transformative breakthrough book, The Power of Now, A Guide to Spiritual Enlightenment, Toll asks and then answers the question, what is the greatest obstacle to experiencing reality? To which he replies that the greatest obstacle is, quote, identification with your mind, which causes thought to become compulsive. The compulsive thinker, which means almost everyone, lives in a state of apparent separateness, in an insanely complex world of continuous problems and conflict, a world that reflects the ever-increasing fragmentation of the mind. Enlightenment is a state of wholeness, of being at one and therefore at peace. At one with life in its manifested aspect, the world, as well as with your deepest self and life unmanifested, at one with being. Enlightenment is not only the end of suffering and of continuous conflict within and without, but also the end of the dreadful enslavement to incessant thinking. What an incredible liberation this is. Identification with your mind creates an opaque screen of concepts, labels, images, words, judgments, and definitions that blocks all true relationship. It comes between you and yourself, between you and your fellow man and woman, between you and nature, between you and God. It is the screen of thought that creates the illusion of separateness, the illusion that there is you and a totally separate other. You then forget the essential fact that underneath the level of physical appearance in separate forms, you are one with all that is. By forget, I mean that you can no longer feel this oneness as self-evident reality. You believe it to be true, but you no longer know it to be true. A belief may be comforting. Only through your own experience, however, does it become liberating. Thinking has become a disease. Disease happens when things get out of balance. The mind is a superb instrument if used rightly. Used wrongly, however, it becomes very destructive. To put it more accurately, it's not so much that you use your mind wrongly. You usually don't use it at all. It uses you. This is the disease. You believe that you are your mind. This is the delusion. The instrument has taken you over. Unquote. Okay, them fighting words, me thinks. The gloves have have come off. As as Eckhart Tolle is, is throwing down a sort of a challenge, or at least a provocation, saying that we are so out of balance that what is usually taken as normal is actually a disease, a disease that we all suffer from without really realizing it. He is saying that we are delusional and are continuously deluded by our own minds, and we don't even know it. He is saying that we don't know who or what we actually are. Now, from the ego's perspective, this might sound like something that's very threatening. In a way, it is, because it challenges every assumption the ego has made, every assumption the ego holds on to to maintain its existence. From the all encompassing perspective of spirit, however, the ego is a fiction, a sort of figment of the imagination, and behind this delusion is utter peace and joy and perfection. So all that's really being threatened here is our limitations, our misery, our suffering. All that we really have to lose is our insanity. But don't take my word for it, or, or even the words of any of these mystic messengers, Consider the wisdom of the words, yes, but but taking things at face value on blind belief never does anyone any good. Far more valuable and important is to find out for yourself. See how all of this operates in your own life, and discover if it is indeed the truth. Think about what it is that gives you trouble, and see, is it what is happening that is causing me to suffer, or is it the thoughts about what is happening? Is it the judgments I make, the feelings that arise, the way certain things strike me as fair or unfair, the resistance to having things go a certain way, and the desire that they go differently? Watch how it all plays out in your life, and in that watching itself comes a kind of a a momentum towards liberation. The moment you start watching the thinker, Eckhart Tolle says, a higher level of consciousness becomes activated. You then begin to realize that there is a vast realm of intelligence beyond thought, that thought is only a tiny aspect of that intelligence. You also realize that all the things that truly matter, beauty, love, creativity, joy, inner peace, arise from beyond the mind. You begin to awaken. Unquote which is just a a lovely affirmation of the truth and brings us, I think, to the final mystic messenger I want to spend some time with in this episode and who might be the most sort of impactful of all in helping us to awaken from the spell that our thoughts have cast over us. Her name is Byron Katie, and like Eckhart Tolle, she is a contemporary spiritual teacher who quite suddenly and unexpectedly woke up one day out of existential despair and into totally enlightened freedom. And since her awakening, she has dedicated herself to helping others find this same enlightened freedom through an elegant and powerful method for deconstructing our thoughts that she calls the work. So let's hear what she has to say about how her own awakening showed her the truth about the thoughts we believe and how they keep us trapped and suffering in our narrow, limited lives. She says, quote, When I woke up to reality in 1986, I realized that all my suffering had had come from arguing with what is. I had been deeply depressed for many years, and I had blamed the world for all of my problems. Now I saw that my depression had nothing to do with the world around me. It was caused by what I believed about the world. I realized that when I believed my thoughts, I suffered, but that when I didn't believe them, I didn't suffer. And that is true for every human being. Freedom is as simple as that. Unquote. This wonderful quote comes from a likewise wonderful book, A Mind at Home with Itself, where Byron Katie and her husband Stephen Mitchell use the lens of the Diamond Sutra, an ancient and powerful Buddhist teaching, to examine the living truth of the mind in both its limited and unlimited operations. And in the introduction to the book, we read. Quote, Once we deeply question a thought, it loses its power to make us suffer, and eventually it ceases even to arise. I don't let go of my thoughts, Katie says. I meet them with understanding, then they let go of me. Her method for doing this, this process that Byron Katie calls the work, involves taking any thought that is causing you distress and looking at it as objectively as possible by asking four simple questions of it. These questions are, is the thought true? Can I absolutely know that it's true? What happens when I believe the thought? And who would I be without the thought? So if the thought is, I am lazy, then looking at it through the lens of these four questions, it can reveal that in fact, this thought isn't something that I can know to be true, certainly not absolutely true. And that when I believe the thought, I feel bad about myself and spiral into guilt and shame. But without the thought, I am happy and carefree. Finally, Katie asks us to turn the thought around by looking at some completely opposite statements we can make that, shockingly, when we consider them, we find out that they are ultimately just as true, perhaps even more true than the original thought we were believing to be true before we started to examine it. In our example, this would certainly include a statement like, I am not lazy, and upon investigating it, I can find plenty of evidence to support how that is true, how that is also a story that I could be telling myself with just as much validity as the negative, self-defeating story I had been previously believing. So it's a very powerful and effective method for deconstructing our deceptive thoughts. And through this engaged practice, we find, ultimately, That no matter what the thought is, it isn't anywhere near absolutely true. Usually it isn't particularly relatively true either. More often than not, it's little more than arbitrary, something we've chosen to believe for any host of psychological reasons. To justify something we did, or confirm what we already believe, or because we've been conditioned to believe it, and on and on and on. And what all the mystic messengers tell us, so far as I can tell, is that these thoughts do not bring us any closer to truth, but rather they shield us from perceiving the living truth as it is right here, right now. These spiritual guides tell us, in fact, that to hold on to our thoughts, to live in our personal narratives and let our minds govern our lives, is actually positively destructive. To return to Eckhart Tolle, quote, it's almost as if you were possessed without knowing it, and so you take the possessing entity to be yourself. The beginning of freedom is the realization that you are not the possessing entity, the thinker. Knowing this enables you to observe the entity. And he continues here with the passage that we've already heard, but which we can relish in hearing once more. Quote, The moment you start watching the thinker, a higher level of consciousness becomes activated. You then begin to realize that there is a vast realm of intelligence beyond thought, that thought is only a tiny aspect of that intelligence. You also realize that all the things that truly matter, beauty, love, creativity, joy, inner peace, arise from beyond the mind. And I think I could remind myself of that every day and benefit every time I hear it that thought is only a tiny aspect of intelligence, and that the things that truly matter, like love and peace and bliss and beauty, arise from somewhere else, somewhere beyond the mind. And here I want to punctuate that with gratitude and praise for whatever it is that we want to call this peace and bliss and beauty and love and truth, and say, Jai Brahman, Jai Atman, Gloria and Excelsis Deo, I willingly surrender this small and limiting thought to that vastness of creation and perfection. Now, Byron Katie describes this process of disentangling from the thought as enlightenment itself. Quote, People think that enlightenment must be some kind of mystical transcendent experience, but it's not. It's as close as your most troubling thought. When you believe a thought that argues with reality, you're confused. When you question the thought and see that it's not true, you're enlightened to it. You're liberated from it. You're as free as the Buddha in that moment. And then the next stressful thought comes along and you either believe it or question it. It's your next opportunity to get enlightened. Life is as simple as that. Unquote which is a powerful and provocative and sort of deeply pragmatic way to engage with enlightenment, I think. And it brings us to a a pretty good end to our investigation. Although I guess in a sense there kind of isn't an ending, as life lived in service of absolute truth is a sort of continual unraveling into joy, into a, a loving presence. But for purposes of this podcast episode, I think we've come to a nice end. We've we've seen what the ego is, or perhaps more accurately, what it isn't, and how to find freedom from its clutches and instead rest in liberated peace as the immortal soul, which is at one with universal spirit. And hopefully you can at least glimpse, and perhaps it's much more powerfully transformative than a glimpse, see that the true self is not a bunch of limiting thoughts about how things are or how they should be, But it is a much vaster, much freer, much wiser, much happier truth than that. In fact, just take a moment to imagine yourself as you are if you are free of all of your personal opinions and perspectives. Your desires to be right. Your need for control. Your resistances to the things you don't like. Your greedy hunger for the things you do like. Living enslaved to your thoughts and emotions, desires and beliefs. Imagine yourself free of all of this. Free of all of your stories about yourself or the world. But just naturally expressing the effortless universal wisdom that flows through you without any interference. Just doing what is right and good without any second guessing. Without any insecurity or intermediary. But just love being love. Peace being peace, bliss being bliss, and you are that love. Peace, bliss, and it is just pure and simple and oh so delightful. This is the awakening that the mystic messengers are inviting us into. This is the truth of who you really are. The wind of divine grace is always blowing, says Swami Vivekananda, the great sage of yoga. You just need to spread your sail. Unquote. In next week's episode, the final episode of this inaugural season, we will meditate together and put all of this into practice by asking what many a mystic has called the most important question of all. Who am I? We will sink into our true self in a meditative way, questioning our assumptions about who we have taken ourselves to be, and see what the self-revealing truth has to say when we quiet down and listen to it, listen from it, abide in it, In the meantime, there are a handful of other meditations and metaphysical talks available through this feed and at mysticalmessenger.com, my beautiful, if I may say so, website, where you will also find all of these quotes that I've cited and who said them and where they came from. Please visit me there, and if you are able to leave a kind comment or a review through Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast... It is really an aid to helping me to spread the life-giving message of the mystic messengers about the ultimate intelligence that resides in each of us, including you, dear listener. The mystic message is such wonderful news worth sharing, and I thank you in sharing in it with me. It is the unbridled joy of the ecstatically liberated self. Thank you for listening and for dedicating yourself to finding that truth and freedom within you. Deep peace and divine friendship to you all.